we measure happiness employee experience every week but if we put together a quarter's data and we say this is the average happiness of this person this team in that quarter and then we look at the next quarter whether people have left or not people and teams that are unhappy have have are twice as likely to leave as twice as high staff turnover as the ones that are happier. So that, and that's immediately the next quarter. It's very quick. You know, if people get unhappy, they start looking for a job pretty quickly. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking to Nick Marks again. Nick is the CEO and founder of Friday Pulse, which is guess now my employee engagement, employee happiness, employee measurement tool of choice. Nick's been on before, so he's talked in the past about the work he did and the TED talk he's done. But today what we're doing is we're digging into, uh, it's in the show notes, there's a, there's a chart in the show notes that Nick and his team have put together, which looks at the weekly employee experience, 2019-2020. And so, you know, you can just see it absolutely goes off a cliff in March. So we talk about that. We talk about why it's come back up. Where are we now? Thoughts and hopes for 2021. We chat at the end about it ends up being some book recommendations from me. But then also there's some uh, fond memories that Nick has for Tony Shea, the uh, founder of Zappos, who passed away recently. Uh, somebody that Nick took inspiration from and, and knew reasonably well. So another great chat with Nick. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did on this cold and blustery day in Salisbury. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Nick Marks. I'm the CEO and founder of Friday Pulse. And you've been on the podcast before, Nick, so people might know what Friday Pulse is. But in a, in a few sentences, what, what, are we trying to, what are you trying to do with Friday Pulse? So Friday Pulse measures and improves employee experience. You can call it employee happiness, team morale, but um, that's what we do. I'm a statistician by trade, and I've got exceptionally interesting over my whole career, really, how you better measure people's well-being, quality of life, happiness, experience of life. And, and this is my latest sort of thing I'm doing. And I think the last time we were speaking, you said you were you were moved to do this because in lots of ways, other people were doing it badly? Yeah, that's my most sort of grandiose and arrogant. But yes, I mean, I, I mean, I used to advise or more likely cajole, challenge governments on how they measured progress. That's what I did for about 15 years. And I did a TED talk on that back in 2010. And, and kind of I thought, oh, I want another challenge. Maybe stupidly, I don't know. And and I thought, well, I just, I don't like the way Gallup measure engagement. I don't like the way that, the way that other people do. maybe I've got something to say there. And um, 
and it, it's a different feel when you're trying to make a product platform rather than just write you know provocative papers or do talks or 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 advise government on stuff so it's a different process and it's taken me quite a while to actually work out what I think the best way of measuring employees' experience of work is that's really, when I say best, I mean, it's got to be scientifically robust, but it's also got to be useful. It's got to be practical so people can use it. I mean, it's no good sort of just sort of measuring stuff and watching it decay or rise. You've got to help people have an intervention. Yes. And so you've got a challenge. You've got two problems. You've got the what's our mechanism for measuring the thing? And then how do we wrap it up in a tool yeah. that that people will engage with more than more than once precisely i mean you've got to make something that fits into the working structure the work the way people work and you've got to create something which is which is light and useful is ultimately what's become my conclusion you know in, in a lot of ways coming out of sort of academia think tank world you know there's a temptation to want to measure things to three decimal places and it's not really very useful. And really what a busy manager, a busy uh, coach, executive wants is is a direction of travel. Are we getting better? Are we getting worse? What can we do about it? And so it's about how can you answer those questions for them and how can you provide data for them very quickly? And in a way, when I say quickly, that's my theory of change, which is that I think that if you want if you want data to help change people, it's got to be very real time. It's got to be very responsive to what's going on so that so that people, one, have confidence in it and two, they can act on it quickly. Yes, and, and, and then make actions and be able to see whether the action they take turns turns up in the numbers. Totally. You know, it's nothing more depressing than sort of doing a big intervention and then no numbers change, yeah? And, and But of course, you don't want them to just change for the sake of changing. But what you really want to is, are you impacting people? And so at the end of the day, what we ask is, is people, you know, how was their week? And we measure every week, you know, uh, we, we ask you, you know, how, how have you felt at work this week from very unhappy to very happy? And people grade that on that one to five scale. And and that becomes a, a, a you know, a, a trend for people to watch. And, and you know, you see when teams, organizations have setbacks and you see how quickly they recover from them. And the, the speed they recover from them from is really resilience, you know, is resilience in action, it's bounce back. We're all going to have bad weeks. Organizations are all going to have setbacks. That's that's part of the world. It's how quickly you bounce back from them. And when we think, when you think there about resilience, is that is that a measure of culture? Well, I never quite know how to define I mean, I, you know, as a statistician, I'm very interested in constructs that you can define and measure. I mean, it's like engagement. I, I don't really know what it is. There's as many definitions of engagement as there are consultants out there with tools. You know, whereas how they feel at work, we do understand how emotions work. We do understand that at the core of our emotional experience is basically a good, bad signal, which from a sort of evolutionary perspective is, should I approach this or should I avoid it? And in that sense, you know, all of our measurement tools are built upon the ideas. Can we pick up that good, bad signal? Can we communicate it quickly? Can we help people act on it? And so uh, so I, I feel much more confident as a statistician about what I'm measuring when I ask people about their experience. Whereas when I ask how engaged you are, people don't know. You know, it's like if you ask people how meaningful is your work, it sounds great, but people don't know what the top of that scale is. Do they have to be Mother Teresa? Do they have to be Nelson Mandela? You know, what, you know they, they don't understand what we have to be, yeah, to be meaningful and contribute it's like, you know will you go the extra mile yeah but will you go 10 miles we go 100 miles i mean there's sort of no limit to it and whereas actually if you say you know how have you felt have you been happy this week have you not been happy this week you know 
we understand that that's our felt experience and we have a, we have a sense of enough with that experience as well yeah yeah i'm happy yeah i'm really happy well and and you know what your five was the last time you had a five or a one you, you, it's your scale yeah. and yeah. individual scales are then comparable they are they are broadly speaking i mean we find very minor cultural effects if we look big internationally that's me being a very nerdy statistician but yes <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but um, but you know, there were some people. So we ask on a one to five scale where three is okay. We mark it yellow. We mark the happy is green, so people know they're giving a traffic light. But you know, some people set point is more about okay each week, and some is more about you know four being happy. But the ones that are okay, they are less enthusiastic than the ones that are happy. So you know, they're definitely even even their set points are you know they contribute different amounts with those. And so, just going back to resilience, then if if a team suffers a setback and bounces back it that that sort of measuring that elasticity does give you tells you something about about that team absolutely i mean it, it could be about an internal resilience it could be about continued pressure from outside i mean in a sense there's there's, there's how well the team is responding to any challenge and of course there's how big is the challenge you know and i mean it's like you know we all face the biggest challenge one of the biggest global challenges no the biggest global challenge in my lifetime last year and 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 it's all there in the data you know everybody had a setback in the middle of march last year you know, every one of our clients all across the data sets and there was a huge huge dip and then a, there's a slow building out of that and of course some of our clients and some of the data we look at people have done better some teams have responded better some have, have done less well and that's partly that some sectors, I mean, some sectors was, you know, been so badly hit and some haven't, but it's also about the internal resilience of those teams, you know, in the teams that have, were able to be agile, were able to talk to each other and collaborate have done much better than those that didn't. And how do you know that in your data? I think when we, in a sense, so we, we are a bit like a zero accounting package for an organization. You know, we provide the data. We don't necessarily provide the strategy. We do provide a lot of clues about how to do it, but we don't necessarily know all of the reasons why people are responding like they are. But in some ways, you know, that's asking too much of the data in some ways. I mean, that's, I mean, the reason people sometimes ask 80 questions in a staff survey is they kind of want to get to the why, right? And then, you know, but then, you know, you have to do all of the statistics about it. And then it's still your opinion as a statistician. So what I've tended to do is is basically use the stats to capture whether it's going well for not well people and then delegate the responsibility of understanding it to the team leader, to the, to the organization themselves. So we feed back all of the data. So ultimately what we do is we build a feedback loop. We help the organization, the team leader learn more as they go along. And then we trust that, you know, that they will respond to it. And of course, clearly, some team leaders are better at responding and using the data than others. But that's the, that's, that's the same thing. There's always, you know, variability. But we really are trying to help team leaders become better team leaders, whatever they start from. So you're talking then about teams. And I think back to when I was, you know, running organizations. And I think, I was thinking about culture as the company having a culture. And there's now this, you know, you'd be talking about teams and a number of uh, Marcus Buckingham in his book, Nine Lies About Work, talks about teams and saying that really any company's culture has to be built team by team. And those sort of team leaders, managers, and the, the experience that the people have working with their day-to-day -day manager or day-to-day -day team leader, 80, 85% of their experience is, is in that team as a result of that group that the manager runs. And so being able to break it down each week and look at happiness by team 
is I mean, it must be the it's now I think back and think I wish I'd had this type of data you know at, at the time we were using Gallup Q12 and we were maybe doing it quarterly or every six months and and there's a long lag between then getting getting the data and doing something and then seeing whether the thing that you did has has an impact so weekly data is just fantastic yeah, I mean, we, it took us quite a time to sort of figure out that was the best way. But I mean, there's two things in there. There's the cadence we do it, which is very rapidly. But then there's also the split down. And people often say, as, as, as you said, oh, we, you know, we've got a culture and our culture is like this. And it's defined by a list of values on the wall, which are normally very fine words. Uh, you know, um, But of course, it's behaviors, isn't it, really? It's actually how we behave with each other. And what I can tell you is whatever data I look about in an organization, there's not one culture. There's lots of microcultures. And and and, and there's, a, there's hot and cold spots in every organization. Of course, whole organizations, there is an effect. But as you say, I mean, I, I, I don't have a precise figure on it, but I think it's about four times as much of an effect of the team as from the whole organization, which I guess is about 80%. But it's like, you know, when I look at the correlation coefficients between, you know, the, the similarity to other team members, to other people in the other rest of the organization, it's sort of more the effect size are about that size, three to four times more. So that old adage that people join organization and, and leave managers is kind of almost certainly correct. Yes. And if you overlay, so if you take, if you take that, I'm just thinking, you know, uh, what it makes me interested in wanting to do with the data is, you know, it makes me want to look at the happiness data and overlay that with uh, maybe um, ability to hire and retain, you know, talented employees, A players, you know, is there a, can you see, can you see a correlation between and, and therefore implied causality maybe between, you know, staff turnover and low happiness. Absolutely. So if we measure, we, we measure happiness employee experience every week, but if we put together a quarter's data and we say, this is the average happiness of this person, this team in that quarter, and then we look at the next quarter, whether people have left or not, then people and teams that are unhappy have tw- have are twice as likely to leave as twice as high staff turnover as the ones that are happier. So that, and that's immediately the next quarter. It's very quick. You know, if people get unhappy, they start looking for a job pretty quickly. What I don't know is whether they're A players or not, because we don't have that data to know whether they're A players or not. But I know about it, the relationship to staff turnover. So what I will say is we, we have this five point scale, which is a half point movement. So, you know, moving half point between one of them on average is uh, 17% lower staff turnover, half a point change. Oh, wow. So one point change. Yeah, yeah. So it's not seventeen percent lower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twenty-five percent. Yeah, seventeen percent of what you've yeah, got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And just to take you back to something you said earlier, you said um, I wasn't. I'm. I wasn't, or maybe I'm not a fan of the way Gallup measures engagement. And and not to not not to knock on Gallup because I you know I've I've used the tool a lot, but in the past. But what what is it about the way in which they do it that you think we could do better? So the Q12 is basically 12 behaviors that they know are related to productivity and what they basically, in a, in a way, in Gallup's world, engagement is a code word for productivity, but they don't have a overall construct of engagement. So when they say in their state of the union or whatever it is, the state of the world uh, engagement report, they say engagement is down by 13% or 13% of people are disengaged, whatever the, the value is. What they're basically looking at is they've gathered those 12 variables together. They've made a sort of huge bell curve and they've said somewhere along the line, this is engaged, this is disengaged. And they, they cut that as a point. And that's it, there's no overall construct really that they're measuring. It, it, it's a hidden construct. Whereas what we do is we say, look, 
how was your week? And our, we've got a very clear outcome variable, which is that is that it's good if people have more good weeks than bad weeks, basically. And 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 uh, and the sort of the more the better, though. I would never say happiness is a variable to maximise. It's sort of to optimise because you want people to be still. You want them to be unhappy sometimes in the sense if something's gone wrong. You don't want them to feel, oh, we've made this. You know, we've made a huge mistake and we're happy about it. You want them to feel that and to put it better. So it's sort of an optimization game that you're going with the variable, but. We've got a very clear outcome, and therefore we can look at the drivers of it. Whereas basically, we you just have to, you know, like Gallup have a question on good friends. I'm, I've got nothing complained, complained about having a, they call it a best friend, but you know, we have a question about friendship, which is which is which is fine. But is that as important as feedback? I, I mean, is it? You know, how do they know? And and basically, what we can say is that we know that team relationships are this important. We know that you know challenge is this important, and we can look at the, the weights because we've got an outcome variable. They've got no outcome variable, and that's and I and I also you know it's it's so so people don't really know how to use that data is what I would say, and they also they don't collect it often enough. And they've got this very weird thing where some of their questions are you know have you had this feedback in the last month? Some are six months. Some are this week. So they're mis- mixing all sorts of cadences. And I think it's very helpful if we go, you know, we, we had two parts of our tour, which is how happy were you this week? And then once a quarter, we ask people, you know, more deeper questions about the, the key drivers of, of good experience at work. And, and, and I think that having that clarity of cadence of timeframes is really important to be useful. I, I mean, the happiness, the, the best friend at work thing is always one of those things that it's, it, it is probably the most uh, contentious, if you like, whenever you roll it out anywhere, because people, I know one company sent everybody teddy bears called best friend and, you know, trying to game the system, but it was just, I think in Gallup, Gallup's world, they say, look, when we've looked at high performing teams, one of the things we find is high people in high performing teams say they have a best friend at work. It, you know, it's just one of those things, but it's a, it's in the pyramid. So it's, it's, it's further up the pyramid, you know, it's, it's um, it's not the one. Well, it's one not the, the one you jump to to fix straight away. No, but one as someone that designs questions, one of the really annoying things about that question is the word best, and and the word best translates between different languages with different weights. So between America, between American English and English English, we mean different things by best friends. You know, for me, that's quite a high bar for a best friend. And, and in America, it's slightly less. And that's a cultural interpretation of the word best. When you put that into a different language, so you translate into French, German, Italian, whatever, they have different weights again. So it's actually really poor questions designed to actually include a word like that. <laughs> you, uh, you, are, so, you are showing off your nerdy creds now, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of important in the sense that, so what I always do with the question is you always try and design a question that has a complete absence to a complete uh, fulfillment of it. So you have from not at all to completely, from very unhappy to very happy. And you have the, the anchors of the questions marked very carefully. And and they tend, I don't know if Gallup do this, do they have, are they agree, disagree scales? I can't yeah, remember. I can't remember what it is. One, it's, one, it's a five point scale again. Anyway, agree-disagree scales, I, I always annoy me, particularly the middle point. What does neither agree-disagree mean, you know? And and do people start putting and don't understand the question into that? And so you get messy data from it. Um, so, yeah, when I get really nerdy, I do start talking about it. But I would think people would like that for the person that designs the question, that I've got that nerdiness. I, I <laughs> yeah, think it's yes. I'm glad. Be quite it, good. It, it, it's, it's a bit like uh, hoping when somebody's designing your brakes on your car that they care deeply about brake compounds and stopping coefficients yeah. <laughs> and stuff. Um, I was just I, I just thinking one of the things that's in the show notes for today is 
is your uh, your comparison for 2019 to 2020 across averages across your clients. And so if we're going to talk through some of the data from last year, then, you know, if people want to go and have a look at the show notes, there's, there's, a, there's a picture of the chart that we're talking about. And I, one of the things, when we were talking about resilience and, uh, and you were talking about challenge, I, I was thinking one of the things that has, I have often read is that, you know, if you take, if you take a lottery winner and, you know, somebody who uh, finds themselves to have had an accident has become paraplegic. And then you look at them like one day after one year later, there's some sort of normalization. And I, it does, is that, is that what you see in the data? Cause you know, there's a, it goes off a cliff in March and then it comes back and are people, are people sort of normalizing or, or actually is there a, is there a real recovery in the data? I, I think there's, there's both things there. Um, so the, the, the famous piece of research you're saying is comparing yeah, lottery winners with paraplegics and how do they feel uh, about their lives over time. And, and actually the first, the initial research did find that paraplegics were less happy after a time. And they did find that lottery winners were slightly happier, but they were not as much as you'd expect. So basically it's a big, you know, big, and why is that? It's because when you win the lottery, you're obviously ecstatic. Okay. And when you become paraplegic, you're obviously totally in despair. And then after a a year or two, you you do adjust to things, and and it, it, someone once commented saying that you you become a part time paraplegic, and by that they meant you don't focus on your paraplegia all the time. Right. You 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 know, and and you can imagine how we would adjust to that in some ways. And similarly with getting a lot of money, I mean, the problem is is that you 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 know you you're still are the same person, so you you probably mess up your relationships in the same way that you did before you had the money <laughs> or whatever else you do. Or, you know? or more so, because now so you've the, got money and that just makes it more complicated. Well, that definitely has been some people's, you know, experience with, with winning the lottery. And so people who were, who were really well adjusted before they got it, they probably definitely get happier because their financial insecurity is gone and they've probably got the emotional security already. So it, money does have an impact on happiness. There's no doubt about it. It's just not as big as, you know, it's not a one-to-one relationship. But with the graph from last year, you know, yeah, we, we, we saw a normal year between January and March, which is that no one's particularly happy in January, February. Christmas is gone. It's winter. You know, it's a little bit lower than normally the rest of the year. Um, but then March came you know, just the bottom fell out of, you know, and if you think how much we had to change at that time, I mean, you know, uh, my organization, we, you know, we're, we're a team and we moved remotely, but we all already worked partly part-time, but lots of people, they just had to organize that. I mean, HR departments must've been absolutely under total pressure as they organized equipment for everybody, whatever. And then people, but people found a way to, to regroup. And that's, we all want to make, we don't want to stay. Most of us don't want to stay in unhappiness. It's a signal to move. And so, of course, people work together to making things better. But basically, our graph is bumpy on the way back up again and is still lower uh, overall by, you know, full five points across all of our clients, which, you know, if you started translating that into things like staff turnover and lost productivity and lost creativity is is a huge, huge impact. I, I, I valued it recently as basically the loss of about uh, £1,000 per an employee in that five-point drop uh, per year. You know, so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a big difference as we go into 2021 now uh, from where we were in, in, in 2020 at the beginning of this year. And it's probably costing you, you know, you know a good few hundred pounds a month per person. And does that, in lost across the whole economy, does that 
does that scale up all the way? Well, I mean, the problem is that my estimations are based on a time which was more stable. So it's a little bit hard to know, but, you know, because I think we, ha you know, it'd be rude to say we haven't seen a lot of innovation. We've seen a lot of innovation from people who are, who, who are doing well, but there again, you know, I don't know how it is with you, but there's a, there's a lot of burnout around me and friends and colleagues going on at the moment. There's a lot of weariness. There's a lot of zoom fatigue, you know, I mean, we, you know, and, and it, yes, it's January and it's wet in England, but it's much worse than that. You know, I've got, I've got one colleague off on long-term stress at the moment and it's not just COVID, but that's tipped him over the edge. And it's got, you know, you've got others that you just, you just feel, I've got one that's just coming back from COVID. She's still got headaches and migraines. You know, we've got all sorts of things that are going on around us, which are very stressful. Well, I, I, I think the uh, school's not reopening is yes. I mean, certainly in, certainly here with homeschooling, you know, six-year-old and a five-year-old i'm i'm still working but you know that's that's my wife's full-time job now so you know if you're trying to hold down a full-time job and homeschool i don't i just neither of those things are possible at the same time yeah so one of my directors she's got two young children i'm guessing six and three or something like that five and three and she just says, right, I can work these four hours in a day. I can't work these. And, and it, it, you know, because she's doing childcare and her husband's doing childcare too, you know, they're, they're juggling it, they're, you know, because they both work. Um, and it's it's very, very hard. And, and of course, we adapt and move around it. But it's far from ideal not knowing when she's around. Or, I mean, she tells you when she's around and when she's not. But of course, you forget. You get in the day. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. And, I, and that's nothing, no criticism of her. It's just that no. her reality, you know. It's, yeah. it's, and she's as stressed as anything. And I think, and I think it's the, uh, some of it's the mo monotony, you know, you, you know, it's the, it's that like Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays and Tuesdays, you know, if you can't, if you can't go, if you're not going out and doing different things, that is just stressful. Like things you used to do and enjoy, you can't do. So yeah, it's, it makes, it's weary, isn't it? I think weary is a good, uh, a good word for it. Yeah. My middle son is a bit of a poet. And he sent me a poem the other day and um, I'm not going to get it exactly, but, you know, it goes, you know, in the middle, it goes, it's the same, the same, the goddamn same. <laughs> <laughs> the cat knows something's up. And I was so excited about his poetry writing that I wrote about it. And, and then about an hour later, I went, but you're, you're in quite despair, aren't you? I sort of forgot the emotional content <laughs> of the poem because as a father, I was just so proud of his poetry, but it's like, and I think that, you know, it's very Groundhoggy Day. I mean, he, he's he's got a really difficult situation. I mean, he, he was further than lost a job at the beginning, but then he has found a new job and he's working. But, you know, him and his wife, they just moved city in February and they don't know anybody where they are. They're in York, you know, and they, they you know, they, they've hardly seen anybody apart from at least they got each other and they were only recently married. So, but, you know, they're quite, you know, isolated and it's hard. They couldn't come for Christmas, yeah. you know. They were coming for Christmas. They couldn't come for Christmas, you know. It's hard, hard, yeah. And and so it's it's interesting that that the data's not further apart, almost. Yes, I mean, I, and that's why I sort of when you said, you know, are we, you know, do we do we recover back to where we are? Firstly, there's an, one one other thing to say is that our data does not include people that are furloughed, and it does not include people that have been made unemployed in this process. So obviously, we're tracking people who are still working, and they, and we also we are skewed to white collar work, uh, so we're not exactly a representative sample uh, of everybody. Um, but yeah, in some ways, it is it is it is 
uh, a sign of human resilience and the ability that we do want to get back to where we are, uh, where we were before. So, yeah, I, I, I get where you are. Though, I mean, there is something in in the in the the use of what we call subjective scales that people are do it probably adjust their set points. But again, as as I think of it more as like it's a signal: is things going badly or not? And, and how do you act on that? Then the, the data having it every week and seeing how things go up and down, particularly at a team level, is very, very useful. You know, if the team leader comes in and can see that, you know, this week we were only 65, that's out of 100 scale, we rescale we, we it. You know, they start to have a different conversation and if they're 75. So although people have only dropped 10 points, you start to have a different conversation about what it is. And, and it allows you to have that every week. And in a, in a way, the data is a sort of rhythm of data, but it's actually the the rituals, I call it by rhythm as rituals, but the rituals of the team meeting and discussing it is where the change happens. The numbers just open a door, but you've got to go through it. A large number of our clients use your tool. And one of the things that we did recently is we brought we brought some of them together to share their data with each other and dig into it. And certainly one of the things that I remember was we were looking at the age range and the impact by age. And there was a significant uh, impact for those employees in their sort of mid twenties. They seem to be the most impacted. Is 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 there something like that in the data? You know, are, is there a difference by age or difference by seniority or? For gender, I want to look at too. So actually, we were just talking about this today. So we just produced that graph for 2020, 2019. And, and I want to create one looking at gender and age groups. So I'm just going to start looking at that data, but we, we will publish on that in a month or two's time. So I don't have a definitive answer. My hunch would be is there will be effects. I think there'll be definitely gender effects. Like, you know, as we were saying then, you know, I, it, it's always the way. And, you know, we're two middle-aged men talking to each other. But, you know, it is always the way that the burden of childcare falls upon women uh, or more on women and, and housework. So I would imagine that we've probably got an effect that men are probably finding it easier than women. That would be my hunch. I don't know. I haven't seen the data. Sometimes the data surprises you. You know, so, I mean, one of the examples of where the data surprised me or gave me a new information last year was I looked in, I don't know, September or something like that. I was looking at what the effects were. And I thought work-life balance would be better because people were at home. It was worse. And I think that's to do with boundaries between work and life falling, that people don't know where work ends and work begins now. So I was expecting because they got rid of the commute and they were at home, they'd say it was better. But actually, you know, with homeschooling, with all of this, with all of that. So I'm going to look at that data and I haven't done that yet. So um, I will do that sometime the next. Yeah, I, this, I've got some anecdotal evidence that people are getting better at that. Certainly when, uh, you know, when we, we were looking at our podcast listener numbers and in March, you know, all podcast listening sort of disappeared because the commute disappeared and that people were listening to podcasts mostly, mostly in the commute. And so that, that went off a cliff. And then you had the data from Microsoft and others that showed that work had just spread into what had been the commute and that, you know, output hadn't changed, but, you know, Parkinson's law was making itself felt and the work was just being spread across the more available hours. And when we, we were looking at the usage or the uh, listener data uh, for for December and January to see whether, um, you know, if, if we could pick anything up and actually the, the listener data suggests that people are uh, listening more than they were in March, if you see what I mean. Like the, the, the latest version of lockdown is having less of an impact in on podcast listener in, listener data than, than the first time round. So 
people maybe have got more of a handle on their their work life balance yeah possibly and you know i mean i i i haven't really looked at the data to see how it's changed september to like january though again that will be something i really look at but um i think that switching of personas from my home self to my work self was particularly hard for some people to do we although we didn't enjoy the commute it was actually one of the least happy parts of the day it did allow you to switch personalities <laughs> Well, I was just, I was just thinking back, we had the summer in September. It feels so long ago, you know, uh, you know, we had, we had, uh, we had the client summer and you were, you were good enough to come and speak. And, and I remember, was it the, was it Japanese, was it Japanese women, the data that you had, which was the least enjoyable thing of their, the two least enjoyable things of their week. What one was work, which was second from bottom and bottom was actually the commute. Yeah. It's actually French women, but yes. Oh, French women. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, so I just thought that was fascinating, you know, that, that there was such a, people despised the commute, but the thing they despised almost as much as the commute was the work. Yeah. And actually when you split it further, so that was an introduction. I, I, I used that bit of data it's from Daniel Kahneman, who's obviously one of the geniuses uh, in psychology. And, and, and it was the first time that sort of happiness data really came alive for me because I'd been working in the field of like well-being for about three or four years then and looking at lots of data, but mainly about overall life. And suddenly he took a day and he split it up into tasks and said, how much do you enjoy it? And you just suddenly could relate to it. I mean, yeah, and, it, you know, in looking at it, the data, this is a sample of about a thousand women working and, and yeah, and, and their work was their sort of second least happy thing. And, and, and the commute was and, and more detailed stuff after that said, actually, that the, the, the least happy thing is the commute to work. The, the next is the <laughs> back from work. And then it's, then it's work. I, I, there was one other thing, which is visiting the doctors was even less happy, but, um, <laughs> but actually that's that's interesting and it's somewhat somewhat depressing that work is so is is when when viewed backwards is so unhappy and i and i, and I at that time it was just 2004 i read that paper a little light bulb went in me maybe sometime i'll try and make work happier because we spend so much time there and it's very difficult to as a sort of someone that wants to rather grandiosely sort of make the world a bit happier it's difficult to reach adults uh, you know, you can't do it much through governments, you know, governments will tax you, doesn't make us happy, collect your bins, you know, but they don't do, you don't really interact very much unless you're retired uh, using the health services or, or in education. So I just thought, well, I could do something in work because that would actually impact people's lives. And I, I still feel passionately about that. I think it's a great way to reach people. And when you, when you look into the data, what are the levers that, so if I'm a team leader and I've got your data, you know, what, what is it the data telling me that I could be doing to make life happier for my people? Yeah. So basically what we do is every week we ask people, how have you felt? So that gives you a bit of data. But then we ask people, what's the success for you? Do you want to thank anybody? Have you got any frustrations? And what we're basically trying to do then we've switched then into text and we're asking people about friction and flow, what's going well, what isn't, which is very in the spirit of retrospectives. It's very in the spirit of scale up. It's like, you know, what we're doing well, what we, how can we build on that? What we're not doing well, how can we reduce that? So we're trying to get that information, but on how we work together at a team level every week. So that's one way. That's one model of change which is every week, you know, uh, build on it. The other one we have is that we do have a, an equivalent of the Gallup Q12. Um, it's the, I don't know, H15, <laughs> but it's, um, you know, but it's, it's based on, you know, what we know the key drivers to happiness at work are. And, and we ask those, and those give you sort of more medium term things that you can do. So there are things about connect relationships, about being fair, are people respected and whatever, uh, uh, empowering them. So about autonomy, 
challenging them so about learning and development or inspiring them meaning purpose achievement and by looking at those ones you can sort of pick up the more longer term ones that are going on so it's that very quick short one and rather jokingly i don't know if you read the book thinking fast thinking slow yes well i call them feeling fast and thinking slow in the sense that the feeling fast is the weekly and the thinking slower is the quarterly uh i, I kahneman is a sort of hero <laughs> One of the things that looking at the 1920 data there, I mean, am I reading too much into it? Cause at the beginning of the year, actually 2020 was already lower than 2019. Uh, that's really, and, and, yeah, reading a bit too much. You know, we, you know in, in reality is, is that we launched Friday Pulse in 2018. So the beginning of 2019, we've not got as many people on the data. So it's a little bit more spiky. Um, I wouldn't read too much in that to that gap. And, and you, I mean, on the data, you point out Blue Monday and then also sort of summer and Christmas holiday. And and Blue Monday seems to not be an event in your data. Is it, is it just like a completely made up thing? Well, it is a, it is a made up thing. It is a made up thing. I mean, I, I wrote a blog, you know, it was the bluest Blue Monday. And, and it's, it's not statistically true. But, you know, clearly in the Northern Hemisphere, January, February is not the happiest time. Uh, and and the sort of thing with it was, oh, you know, people's credit card bills are due, due and things like that after Christmas. And it was supposed to be like that. But, you know, it would depend an awful lot on how the weather is that day and what it is. And But, you know, having said that, with us being in lockdown again, it's not a particularly happy time of year. So, you know. Yeah. And then it's interesting that the holiday peaks stand out still in 2020. Yeah, you see Christmas come late. Uh, you see nothing at Easter because that was obviously when we were locking down the first time. But you see some in summer. And, you know, but if you think about what was happening in the summer, we were all a little optimistic that we were coming out of it, weren't we? I mean, you know. Yes. You know, you were particularly optimistic. I think. <laughs> <laughs> you were quite cavalier. Even for me. I mean, you, you, got, you got a conference organized and I came to it and we, we were in a teepee and it was like brilliant. You know, it's the, that's, the, that's the only live event I've done this year is your event. And, uh, and and it was twenty and it was twenty seven degrees and the sun shone. It was brilliant. Just brilliant. It was really good. And um and you know good speakers and good food and all sorts of stuff. It was really really good. Really good. And and you just think, God, I miss that, don't you? I mean, that was the overwhelming thing of my coming away from that day was I really miss live events, and I haven't done another one since. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I do keynotes down a camera and I and. You maybe get some chat on the side, but it's just nothing like the experience of being able to sort of see people and talk, you know, yeah. So I, on building on that, I I am pretty confident that if you want to build an amazing business and you don't want to populate it just with people who like to sit in dark corners on their own, that actually offices play a role in the future of work. Um, yeah, for exactly the reason that you said, yeah. which is, you know, you can deliver a keynote down Zoom and it is functional, yeah. but it is not the same as human beings interacting with each other human beings. And, and often when people say, are you sure? I say, well, look, I think, I think the evidence now suggests that Homo sapiens defeated Neanderthals because it out-teamed them. And I, just, and I just think if you bring human beings together, physically together, you get a team that you just don't get when you're on zoom i think we can all be incredibly pleased we had zoom and that we didn't have this pandemic 20 years ago i think it would have been very different the experience you know of having to work from home with a dial-up 
<laughs> well, that's an impossible thought, isn't it? Um, and yeah, we miss people for sure. I mean, I think the balance is going to completely change, isn't it? In that, I think that. I mean, I, I don't know what you're thinking. I'm thinking, you know, I, I run a team of 12. I'm thinking that once a month I'll rent a room when we all bring our laptops and we come together, maybe twice a month. Uh, and we'll be more remote than some. I think lots of people will have two or three days working from home, two or three days in the office. Um, the thing we're going to have to watch for is in and out group effects, which is that, in a, in, you know, my, my youngest is, is, is doing a paper PWC at the moment, wants to be an accountant, goodness knows why. He wants to go into business anyway, but he, he, is, he, he did his first placement in person. He's, he's done his second two, you know, remotely, and at least he did one. But for his generation coming through, how do you pick up all that learning, you know, that, that person who you don't quite work with, but you sort of like and you, and you learn something from them and you pick up informal mentors and, you, you, you know, that's all gone. So there's definitely going to be a place for in-person. I just think the balance will change for sure. Yes. Can you see which people have been more resilient than others? Because there's a couple of blog posts I've read that, you know, sort of said, look, it wasn't introverts or extroverts. It was, you know, there people are trying to work out how do you spot people who might be, resilient at working from home i guess from a a profile perspective yeah we don't have we don't have personality data very much in ours you know um and so and that's not the purpose of our tool our tool is not is less to diagnose it's more to help act differently um but i'm sure there will be differences but i i you know i mean i I know anyway we're not all extroverts and introverts. I mean, I'm a classic extrovert in many ways. I get a lot of energy from being people, but I actually like spending time on my own, you know. And and uh, and so I, I I haven't found it too bad, you know. And I see people every day because I work with them. But um, I am looking forward to a good party, aren't you, Gar? I think Christmas was very disappointing, but, 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 you know, uh, it's, 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 I mean, at least I mean, I, you know, I, I'm married to someone I like, you know, so actually I like, you know, so it's quite easy to, to, to be with her and, and to, 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 to not, you know, not get down. But I mean, you know, one of my sisters has got divorced during lockdown. I mean, three years too late, in my opinion, she's got, <laughs> but, you know, she, she, you know, she's had a really hard time, you know, and, and and it, it, just the variability of experiences is massive. It's not only personality. I think it's context and you know and and other things too. But there, there definitely will be differences. And 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 I have again. I haven't looked at that. I mean, we we would have broad demographic data. Like we'll have people's age. We'll have their length of service. We'll have their gender. Um, we won't have much more than that data. I I, I do want that there will be some things in there. I mean, it was interesting when we were looking at the clients' data because they're a. Uh... Uh, they're a, a group of schools. And one of the things that we saw was that one of the groups that were particularly affected were, were, were the teachers of the children in the primary school because as they'd gone back uh, after the summer, they the teachers were in a bubble with their class but couldn't mix with each other. So you can imagine these are predominantly single people living at home, coming to school, teaching a class and going home again. And it, and it is just, you, you know, no wonder... Uh, no wonder they were finding that that difficult. Much of the stuff that they might normally get from work was denied them. The staff room wasn't open in the same way. And so it's interesting to look at their data and see which jobs 
seem to be suffering more than others and then for the team to be thinking well what could we do to put something in place specifically for them because now we can see from the data that that they're feeling particularly challenged and I, and so I, I you know spending time with them and, and looking at their data with them I thought ah oh, you know it's so good that they can they've got you know, they've got some questions that they can go and ask to validate that this is a thing. And then if it is, they can put some remediation in place. I mean, that's a perfect description of why uh, I shouldn't interpret data too much, because how can you know that? And how could you ever ask the questions that that's what's going on? Whereas at a local level, you can really interpret it and put the meaning on it. So actually, you know, again, that's why I think it's really best to measure quite simply, feed it back and then help people make their own interpretations. Because that sounds that's a great story. I mean, there's no way if I'd looked at the data, I would have known that. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah, so that's why we basically try and not be agnostic to what people do, but, you know, say, this is what the data says. What do you think? You know, you're, the data is facilitating a learning experience ultimately. And what's uh, hopes and dreams and plans for the, for the, for 2021? So look, we, we, we would, would, I was saying to you before we joined that, you know, we, we, we tripled the number of clients we had last year because we're, we're a small growing business and, and we need to do that again. And really our, our thing is about how do we get people to understand what we do and how do they get them to understand how different we are than say a Gallup or say another organization and, and how much, you know, uh, because it, it, at one level we look, we look similar, but then on another level actually we experience very differently. So I think we've got to get better at communicating that difference. And so we're doing things like, um, you know, putting out that graph and, and then we just created something called Friday One, which is FridayOne.com, which you can go to and do a, your own test about your happiness at work and it feeds back to you how you are. So I have this big thing about how data acts like a mirror. It shows you how you are. And so create tools that do that so people can just start using it, create free tools that do that. Uh, we have a free trial, as you know, actually, you, you know, you and <laughs> And you were happening and saying, you know, we need something free for people to use. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And then lockdown came. I thought, well, no one's spending any money. I'll go with what Dom thinks, sort of thing, you know. And uh, and we, we opened up a free trial, and that's worked very well for us. So we have a six-week free trial for people to come and use our, our product so they can see it because we do understand we're, we're new and different. And, you know, basically for us it's about growth. We, 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 we want to consolidate the product. There's ways that, you know, anybody that's creating a new product has ways that you can improve it, but we don't want to bring on lots of new features. We more just want to consolidate what we've got, make what we've got better, work better for our clients, and then, you know, concentrate on basically on marketing uh, because um, people haven't heard of us. Why should they have heard of us? We're, we're new and small, but I'm quite convinced I would be, but I'm quite better than other people. Uh, but, you know, we, yeah, as we know with, you know, Betamax and VHS, the best doesn't necessarily win, you know. So I think we've got to basically just get out there and shout a bit more uh, this year. Yeah. Fab. And have you been, uh, read any good books recently? Oh, yes, I have. <laughs> I, I, well, I mean, I got, I, I, I did physics when I was 11. I've been reading some amazing books on time and about what time is physics doesn't even think time exists now which is quite extraordinary but because i'm interested in time because i'm interested in cadence i was reading and it and, it, and, it, and basically he goes on about how humans we don't experience time as snapshots it's flow and even physics has no concept of now it only has the concept of the relationship and I thought it was really interesting because ultimately that's what I've done with the data, which is I've, I've always rejected snapshots 
and I'm interested in the in in time trends, and it really because it's the it's it's the flow of people's experience which actually helps us understand. It's the change. So in that sense, that was just brilliant. But it's called it's called um, what's it called? The Order of Time by Carlo Rovelli. But anyway, that's if you like physics. Um, but uh, have I read any good books on business? I, I had a I had a break from business books over Christmas. Uh, what was the best business book you've read recently? I'm, I'm now struggling to think what I've read that's really good. Uh, I have read, uh, I've read a few, uh, fab books. I'm again, one of these, you know, Christmas, you know, maybe change it up, but I, I went back to tool of Titans by Tim Ferriss. So he, you know, he, he, he took, he took, he took, he went off to Paris a, a while ago, <laughs> not last year, a year before maybe. And he locked himself away with the transcripts of all the, all his podcasts. And he went through and he pulled out all of the sort of words of wisdom from the people he'd had on his podcast and he put it together as a book. And originally it wasn't on, it wasn't a rate on, on audible. So I bought it and skimmed it, but never read it. And so I listened to it. I listened to it twice on audible over Christmas. Um, and four steps to the epiphany, Steve, uh, Steve, Steve blank, which is sort of that sort of sparked the lean startup revolution. Um, yeah. so I, I thought that was, I thought that was fantastic. And you know what? I also went back and reread, uh, Jim Collins cause he, he'd done B, uh, BE 2.0 just before, just before Christmas. So I'd read that. And so then I went back and listened to good to great and great by choice again over Christmas. And I was, and, and I was, and I came away, you know, like, you know, talent is absolutely vital. But, but, yeah. you know, listening to his stuff again, you know, he just keeps on making the point, you know, that having the best team, you know, having a great strategy in an ordinary team doesn't make you a great business, but having a great team and a not, not the best strategy in the world is probably better. You're probably better off always just having better people. And I, and it's not, it's not that I didn't know it or that I don't, obsess about people and the quality of the team when I'm working with clients, but maybe I felt I wasn't obsessing about it as, as much as I should, given, given what he says about it in the data from the data that he collected. Yeah. I think having the right team is, is so critical. Isn't it? I, I think I read somewhere or someone told me, you know, as a CEO recruitment is just such a major thing that you do and you mustn't underestimate it. And, you know, like I brought in a, I mean, I'd like her to be CEO, really, because I'm more of a product developer than I am an absolute CEO. But, you know, she's sort of chief commercial officer and she, she's just so brilliant, you know, and so so detail orientated where I can see vision and she's really good at operationalizing. And, you know, and I've got really good marketing director and um, I'm having to get a new CTO at the moment because um, my co-founder's taking some time back uh, and. But, you know, getting the right team is, is the most important thing you can do, I think. And then, yes, it's strategy and operationalizing it. But if you haven't got people that you that you really respect and you really like, you know, I, I think it's hard when you want trying to do something where you're trying to move quite quickly. So I'm hoping I, I hope I hope that we can flourish from what you just said. Um, I think strategy, you know, I mean, that's one thing we haven't talked about. I mean, uh, Tony Shea died last oh, yes. year. And and, you know, I knew Tony, you know, well, not very well. I don't think anyone knew Tony very well, but I, I knew him for 10 years. Um, and, um, you know, it was very sad he died. But what he was brilliant at, he was brilliant at people. 
but he was also brilliant at strategy. You know, he didn't do it from one of those things. He had them both. I mean, how, what an extraordinary thing to set up a shoe shop online and make it work. Yeah. And, and he did that through brilliant strategy. You know, he did things like, you know, 365 days to send back a pair of shoes if you didn't want it. So it gave people confidence to buy shoes. But he did it through brilliant sales, brilliant culture stuff, you know, saying to people, you know, all the people that work from, you know, use your judgment, be yourself, you know, really empowering. Try and make emotional connections with clients on the phone or the email. You know, this Zappos was legendary for making extraordinary <laughs> decisions about how people spent time. But, you know, God, it worked. You know, he's made a billion dollar business. Um, and he was, you know, and he was good at both of those things people and strategy well and then he had a vision yeah. to transform you know because they moved to vegas the outskirts of vegas and he had he had the vision to try and um transform you know transform the the place that they their office was in as well yeah no yeah that was absolutely wild sad yeah. wild. i mean it was wild what he tried to do down to, yeah but it was genius i mean it didn't work but it was it was totally genius you know the idea you know it was so exciting but Amazon, apparently, when they said they bought it, they said they didn't buy it for the culture. They bought it for warehouse efficiencies. <laughs> and, and, and he was so he was also efficient. Do you know what I mean? It was like he, he did it all. He did it all, you know, in, in a way. Uh, very sad he died, but he'd lost his way personally, I think. You know, so it was quite, it was, it was a, you know, anyway, I, he's, 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 he's shone so bright. I don't know. Maybe he didn't quite know where to go. But anyway, sad. Yeah. Uh, he was he was he was an interesting. Do you no, remember, I didn't. Do you I mean, that, read read his book. Was absolutely inspired by many of the things that he did at Zappos. The culture, the way they hired. Um, you know, I even I even stole stole his um the you know two thousand pound bonus if you quit within the first four weeks. We we renamed it the Foxtrot Oscar bonus, and that got us quite a lot of good PR in the UK when I was at Pier One. Yeah, you know, when I asked him about that, I said. He said, he said, yeah, I don't think I pay enough because some people I don't like stay. <laughs> and he doubled it. <laughs> and he doubled it to $4,000 in the end. He, he said, I don't think we're offering enough. I want to make it even better for them yeah. to leave. And, 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 you know, he, yeah, he was, he was, yeah, he was very impish in that way. Very, very funny. And, uh, yeah, interesting man. Interesting man. Very difficult to know. Um, uh, very funny if he got on the decks and uh, at a party and started uh, DJing. It was funny. <laughs> Nick, uh, on that uh, reflection on uh, Tony Shea, we'll we'll call it a day. Yep. Thank you very much again for coming back on and and chatting through the data for 2019 and 2020. That was great, and um, we've put we've put it in the show notes. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.